Have you ever heard an absolutely cringe-worthy wedding speech? If you're like me, you've heard that lots of times, and you've also seen amazing speeches. And whether it's at a wedding, in a boardroom, uh, on a stage somewhere, the art of public speaking is so important to share your ideas with the world. Again, in small settings or big settings. And that's why today's guest on the Chase Jarvis Live Show is one you're not going to want to miss. Victoria Wellman is a professional speech writer. She's written speeches from uh, politicians to NFL superstars, huge CEOs, influencers of all walks of life. It's an incredible episode specifically about how to craft an amazing speech. I think if you're like me, you had a belief that these people who just rock it in all of these different uh, environments they have some natural gift, but the reality is that there is a framework, a thought process that we should go through in order to craft the speech. And that's what this episode is about. You're going to hear all kinds of anecdotes around how to think about it, around how to reveal this inner vulnerable piece of you that makes speeches so important. And this is something that anyone can learn and master. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this conversation. Yours truly and incredible speechwriter, Victoria Wellman. Enjoy the show. Hey, before we get into the show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Creative Live. Creative Live is the best online platform for creative, entrepreneurial, and freelance learning, hands down. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, a Creative Live subscription includes access to more than 2,000 classes in art, photography, filmmaking, design, business, entrepreneurship, and more. And those classes are taught by the world's top experts, people who have won Pulitzer Prizes, people who have won Grammys, Oscars, uh, Emmys, you name it. It's where the best and the best go to teach. Now, since day one, Creative Live has always been committed to streaming content for free for those who can't afford the subscription that gives you access to all 2,000 classes. So in 2021, Creative Live doubled down and launched a free program for, for those who could not afford it. That free program is called Back to Biz, and that helps specifically small businesses, entrepreneurs, and freelancers come back from economic challenges presented over the past two years of the pandemic. That free content is available if you want to check that out at creativelive.com slash back to biz. That's B-A-C-K-T-O-B-I-Z, creativelive.com slash back to biz. So check it out and let's get back into the show. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. An honor and a privilege. Well, I am fascinated by your area of work, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. I was introduced to your work by um, my book agent, who I believe is also yours, and um, I've become a big fan. And you take a very interesting angle on a time old tradition, and in part, that tradition is about communicating ideas and. But without me putting words in your mouth, I would love to hear how you describe the work that you do in the world and, uh, and and do so in a way that helps us understand what you care about, think about, and why you're on the show today. Great. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Um, and I will just say one of the ironies of what I do is that I spend so much time 
really carefully considering and crafting messaging that when I'm actually asked as human to human about my work, I basically don't stop. So please do <laughs> interrupt me when I, when you feel like I've made the point and you want to move on. Um, so yeah, brevity is not my forte. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you called speech writing a sort of time old tradition. And I think, um, I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to um, write the book was because I really feel like this is such an old, it's like, you know, the oldest form of communication, right? Before there was Instagram and t Twitter and all the stuff and even the printed press, right? We were just talking. Um, and I just feel that, that there, there hasn't evolved a way of thinking about the craft, right? So people are still, people still think of speeches as this quite kind of like rigid form of communication. Um, but I really truly believe like this is a, a real creative um, discipline and a creative act when you go to, you know, try and put together a speech. And I think that is just one of like the biggest misconceptions um, about writing speeches. Um, and because of that, people are really um, committed to and convinced that they can find, they can find the answers to how to do it in a, in, in a manual in the nonfiction section of the book, you know, of the library or the bookshop that, or, or tips worth, worst. My, I mean, my biggest sort of, pet peeve is just like you know these sites where you can like do um get tips for how to write this speech or um and the the thing that i'm pushing against is that there is any prescribed formula or template or way to do this that is correct because there are so many variables to consider and and it is an act of self-expression. So you put those things together and say, like, how could you possibly impose a structure or a, a set of rules to do this thing? And I think a lot of people might read the book. I mean, let's just, I hope a lot of people read the book, but a lot of people might read the book and, and be frustrated that I actually don't hold their hand to the podium and tell them exactly how you have to do everything. But I can't, right? I can tell you how to think about it, what kind of things to notice and consider as you step through these hoops. And I can, so I, I talk about it at the beginning of the book. This is not a how-to, it's a how-I, because I've been doing it for so long. Um, but, you know, there just, there just isn't a formula to this. And I think part of what sort of I get so excited about is that when I talk to people about it, they're really interested in, what I do because they recognize that it's a very, very human process because it is about asking questions and listening and then considering like, well, how can I now turn what I just heard into something that, you know, me times 500 or 300 might be able to really sort of identify with and, um, and, uh, you know, feel like really engaged with. So, um, you know, that's, I think people are really excited about that, but they haven't ever really considered what that means in terms of the process of the speech writing. Yeah, process is fascinating. That's one of the things that the show is very much about. And uh, for reference, when um, when you're referencing the book, Victoria, for the listeners and watchers yes. at home, we're talking yes. about your book, Before You Say Anything, The Untold Stories and yes. Fail-Proof Strategies of a very discreet speechwriter. And 
one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show, as I mentioned in my, you know, few sentences there at the intro was so many people who are listening or watching are, are creators or entrepreneurs and part of getting your ideas out there, creative ones, in fact, or whether you're trying to launch a company or get people excited about a, uh, a venture or a project is in communicating these ideas. And when I observe across the creative and entrepreneurial communities, I, I, the biggest gap that I see is not the people that have the, a lack of ideas. It's their ability to help people understand their ideas. And therefore, the ability to communicate these ideas is totally critical. And as you said, long before we were you know, writing, we were communicating in person with our hands and our face and our mouth and our, our, our as you said, carefully crafted words. And so to me, your profession, this book in particular is, I would just call it required reading for people who want to communicate their ideas out into the world. Because whether we think about speeches as attached to the podium or in the boardroom, we're always giving speeches, right? We're always communicating our ideas into the world. So, you know, this idea of before you say anything, which is the, you know, the title of the book, why did you start there? Why is it before you say anything versus like, here's how to say things? <laughs> why, why would you choose before you say anything <laughs> right. as the title of the book? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I mean, such a good question because it's, it, it is so much about the process of exploration and sort of experimentation and curiosity that goes on before you even think about what words you're going to use, right? So when you're writing, I mean, first of all, thank you for pointing out that speeches are not attached to a podium. I have been, you know, trying to do a little bit of messaging on social media about like why you should, you know, quote unquote, give a shit about speech writing if you're not giving a speech. And it is because precisely as you say, we are always communicating, always, always. Like as soon as you open your mouth, you're doing it hoping someone else will listen and that you can convince them of the thing that you're feeling or believing or whatever it is, right? So, um, but when it comes specifically to speeches or these sort of like contrived remarks, right, that you have to deliver, the act of preparation is the thing that will ensure that what you say when you come to find whatever words is, you know, is elevated and, and, and strikes the right tone. So, so much of the book is about saying, look, just forget for a second that you need to write something and say something and just consider the ideas that you want to share and the people you're sharing them with, the timing, like the moment that you're speaking, like the cultural moment that you're in when you give this, the physical location you're in, right? Are you sitting on a bar stool in a gazebo in the Caribbean with a bunch of nonprofit people, like some speakers I've worked with? <laughs> or are you, you know, is it you and like 20 lit agents in a, you know, in a in a boardroom? Like um, you know, it just all these like tiny things, they really, really matter. You have to, there's so much to consider. And then beyond that, there's just, you know, there's 
what I say is there's the stuff you know, you know, and then there's the stuff you don't know, you know. And having the curiosity and the humility to say, well, I think I know what this this is going to be about because I'm such an expert, but I'm willing to just say, actually, I need to go beyond that. I need to be curious because there are different ways to package up the thing that I want to say for this particular crowd. And so, you know, almost like putting aside what you already know you're going to say and that you want to say, and then leaping off into the unknown and going, let's just see what happens when I go, you know, researching and also keeping your mind open. I mean, I, you know, listen to podcasts all the time, big, big surprise. Um, but, and I often find myself, you know, stopping mid run when I'm listening to a podcast to take down a note because something, you know, Dolly Parton said is just so perfect for the speech that I'm writing about, you know, so-and-so. And so it's just like constantly being open to taking in, and that's the process of sort of gathering your material. That process in itself, the sort of material of the raw materials, is a huge part of it. And I think people just sidestep that because they think they know what they have to say and they freak out about like getting up on stage and saying it. And there's just so much work to do before then. So that's why it's before you say anything <laughs> you got a long road but it should be fun and full of like you know curiosity and discovery and you know learning the best you know the best i uh, what i believe there is a gap in understanding that the best speakers in the world whether they're in boardrooms or on stages or in small um environments that you talked about like uh someone sitting in the caribbean on a panel or something like these Mm. The the crafting of the remarks has happened. It has happened over time. And most people who are watching those things or listening or are people who are listening right now and want to get better at that, it is often so easy to uh, make the false assumption that that just happened, that that is just natural, that there hasn't been, you know, so much time and thought thoughtfulness and preparation put into it, which is, I think one of the reasons your book is especially timely in a world where attention is um, so difficult to capture and especially so difficult to hold for more than a millisecond on some social media platform. It's you watch people like, uh, you know, the, the late Sir Ken Robinson, you watch him give a speech. Uh, it's absolutely mesmerizing. But when you speak to, you know, I just had the chance to speak to his daughter and the amount of, you know, preparation that goes into understanding the little stories and the nuances that that appear so effortless on stage that has actually been carefully prepared and practiced and considered. So I would like to shift gears. And now that we're we are understand the theory of, you know, your ambition with the book. Uh, and again, I'll say mm. the title before you say anything. The Untold Stories, Fail-Proof Strategies of a Very Discreet Speechwriter, I would like to understand some of the tactics. First of all, why, why, would, um, why would someone want to, you, you said it was almost convince or something like that. You, you used a word, I forget what the word is, hmm. to pay attention. What? you know, and again, this is a very open question, but why would someone, why would I care enough to craft my message? 
well, I mean, if you, if you, because if you don't think about, you have to think about the person you're crafting it for. So if you don't pay attention to them, why on earth are they going to pay attention to you? It's just, it's respectful, you know, it's, it's, it's acknowledging that like, you know, I could make an analogy about, um, you know, being creative and all the variables out, you know, that you have to consider um, when you're writing a speech. And I might say, you know, there isn't one way to do it. I mean, look at how Rocky trains in Rocky Four versus how Ivan Drago does, right? <laughs> Ivan Drago goes into the gym and does exactly what you're meant to do right? He weight trains and whatever. Rocky goes into, you know, the snow and starts like carrying logs and whatever. And that's how he gets strong. And that's how he wins. Now that's like his creative thing. Now, if I'm speaking to an audience of millennial women, I might not choose that analogy because they might not have seen Rocky four, or at least probably haven't. I'm always amazed at things that like my references, I'm like, Oh, that's really out of date. Um, but you know, I'm not going to use that. I'm going to use something else because they don't get it. Right. So Mm. then do I want them to walk away and just go, well, I didn't connect to anything she's saying. Well, no, that's, you know, you're just doing yourself such a huge disservice. And, you know, the thing, and I just want to sort of circle back to this point that you made before, because it is all, it is all related. This idea of, um, you know, authenticity and spontaneity and extemporaneity, argh, just, it, I, I, I talk about it in the book ad nauseum, probably. Um, the very, very few people, in fact, I'm going to say no one can get up and make a 20 minute speech about the lack of creativity in education without having really meticulously and thoroughly, you know, researched, put together the thoughts, rewritten, draft, redrafted, revised. It's just, no one does that. Now he might get up on a stage and use a teleprompter and make you think that he did it just like that. But, you know, the thing that bothers me about There are so many misconceptions about about this, about how the strategy of communication might be perceived as like being manipulative or like, you know, oh, you're just trying to make me feel. Well, of course I am. But if I didn't do that, then you're not going to listen to what I have to say. And for me, I feel like if you're if you think it's okay to spend hours crafting your message and then pretend that you and then sort of basically lull your audience into this false sense of um, spontaneity by using a teleprompter and the audience says, well, that's okay. Like I can ignore the fact that I know that he actually crafted this because it comes across, well, that's inauthentic in itself, right? You know, I think the authenticity piece nowadays is such a big deal and everyone's talking about, you know, being authentic and telling your story and all that stuff. But like, if no one's listening to your story because you didn't stop to think about how people hear things, perceive, understand, relate to, they have to find themselves in it, then what, why would, you know, what's the point, you know? I love it. You actually opened the book with what you call a gentle warning. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, um, it actually, that was the part of the book that I, I, I think I wrote it almost at the end or like three quarters 
through and I wrote it in about 10 minutes um, because it was, I suddenly realized, I was like, this is, it was something that I was, you know, really struggling with. It's like, I know how to do this, but now I have to articulate my process for an audit for, you know, a readership who then has to be able to take something from it and, and somehow use it, but without, but it's, but I was like, it's not a manual. It's not a manual because there's no prescribed formula. You know, that's obviously key to everything. And so I thought it was important to say, look, and use my daughter. And this is one of these examples of the, of the sort of the analogy and metaphor you can use. My daughter has, you know, crafting sets and Lego sets aplenty. Does she ever follow the instructions? No. What she does is she takes the pieces and she makes the thing she wants to make. And sometimes it drives me crazy, but actually in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm so proud of you because when we think about like this is sort of goes to this heart this sort of creativity piece do you want to make a speech or craft a message that is someone else's puzzle or do you want to paint the picture and cut out the pieces and make the puzzle yourself right like there are so many ways to when you're when you're thinking about how to reach someone and make impact you have to strive for originality if you're just going to go down the generic route okay it's safe but no one's going to remember what you said and it's not going to make anyone think or do anything differently um so you know i just say in the beginning of the book if you are here for a how to and you want to put the lego thing together the way that your neighbor down the hall does so that you end up with the same thing, then this is not the book for you. This is not a how-to, it's a how-I. And the reason that I can write it is simply because I've just done it so many times, right? So it's, I'm, I, I hate the idea in anything that there is a correct way. There cannot be a correct way when you're talking about making something and creating right like you know there's not a correct way to take a photograph right how could you like write a book like this is how you take a photograph and I always think about you know there's like um my daughter also has one of those um sketch like how to draw how to draw right you know and it's how to draw the face uh, and so it sort of has this diagram and it's like you know the eyes go here and what have you I'm like great okay if okay whose face are you drawing because, you know, the Norwegian seven-year-old's face that you're doing a portrait of is not your, like, Maori grandmother's face. And the person with the eye patch does not look like, you know, the person with the hair lip. And so who, what is that face that you're making me draw and saying that that's the correct way to draw a face? It's just not. Better, that what, better to, to say, when you're drawing a face, notice are the eyes symmetrical? You know, how are the eyebrows? Are they are they pushed down? Is there a single monolid? Is there, you know, notice these things and then paint or draw what you see. But, you know, it's just, it's about observation and being curious and understanding that they're just the right way is always the wrong way. <laughs> well, this underscores a couple of things. It underscores 
the creative process, which is what your book is about, and the creative process specifically towards you know writing speeches and being able to communicate uh, one's ideas. But the the personal aspect of it is something that is very difficult to overstate, and it's very easy for us to see that in the expression of something like, say, a painting where Yuan Miro can just mm. put a red circle on a canvas and I can do the same thing. And well, why is the Miro worth $20 million and mine is, you know, worth $20. And it's because there's a personal narrative wound up in that painting, what it took to be able to do that and to all the, the knowledge and understanding that goes forward. And that same level of personality and individual individuality and all that, if, if we can embed those in, our words and the stories that we sell tell on stages and in front of in, in boardrooms and in front of groups of people that we're hoping to inspire, um, then you know we'll we will we will literally be more successful in sharing our ideas. That's the fundamental principle of the book, right? It's like if if you if you can be intentional with what you are aiming to communicate and to who or to whom <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, 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 mm-hmm. that is such a thing that is, um, ignored. So having, um, a, a little bit of background now we've talked about, you know, mentioned the book and the concept, but you've been doing this for your life, your lifetime, basically give us, give a little context <laughs> of, of, I'm not that young. <laughs> give a little context <laughs> of the oratory laboratory. Um, and, and, sort of share with us how you got to this point in your career. Well, first of all, I will say it is the oratory laboratory. You have to say it in an English accent. So you're going to have to work on that. I will work on Um, it. Okay. Um, So it was a very circuitous route um, in a way and very direct in in another way. Um, I... I trained as a drama student um, and, and, you know, thought, oh, I'm going to be an actress. And then whilst trying to be an actress, decided to sort of satiate that kind of creative desire. And I just started writing because no one can tell you not to write, but lots of people can say they don't want you in their movie. Um, and so I just kept writing and then found that actually I was much better at it and it made me feel better and, um, and I just sort of started to move away from, you know, from the from the drama, but obviously all loved the story, loved storytelling. And so I worked in as a writer, um, you know, feature writing, reporting, copywriting. I did a ton of voiceover, you know, bringing in that drama um, education as well. And um, my partner at the time now husband um also had a performance and background and was also a writer and we um we had been to a few weddings together one summer um which obviously is the ultimate test of any relationship can you handle other friends weddings um and at every single wedding we went to and they were all very nice weddings when it came to the speeches it just, you know, the energy just became, it just bombed. It was just like, the oh, it was so awkward because they were all terrible. <laughs> and we were driving back down, and I talk about this in the book, we were driving down the I-95 back to New York after one of them. And I was just like, you know, it, it just, 
someone needs to help people because it isn't a given that you know how to do this. Someone has to do it. And then we kind of just, look, I mean, it was really cliche. We kind of looked at each other and went, could we? <laughs> um, and, you know, we had both sort of obviously written some speeches ourselves and knew that we were quite good at it. And then, so we literally just put together this website, um, came up with the name, um, which, you know, we had, I think our first idea was picture them naked, uh, but it was taken. And I'm really glad that it was because later I came to realize that actually it's just not about imagining that the audience is naked at all. Like, you know, that's kind of like, that's a trick and it doesn't work. Um, so I'm really glad that URL was taken. Um, so, but we just, we just started it and we had a sort of sense of what the process would be based on everything that we kind of knew about, you know, sort of absorbing story and then sort of regurgitating for different people. And, and, and we kind of, you know, I will say we were making it up as we went along at the beginning and then quickly realized that like, no, actually I, 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 I do know how to do this. I am really good at it. Um, and that is, and that is how the oratory laboratory came to be. And then we got married because that was a lot easier to work. <laughs> together <laughs> well i know you've you, combined you have crafted messages for you know ted stages and the un and obama's campaigns and google intel so many other other um leaders and uh craftspeople and um idea folks it it what i'm interested in hearing is that these techniques are the same techniques that are used in everyday life the techniques that you are talking about in this book around mm. you know the stage of these high profile clients that you have would be the same techniques that you might use in a conversation with your partner about the future of your profession for example and an example that i would like to hear you explore in real time is mm. is mm -hmm. I, I have identified over the course of my career that I look backwards and connect the dots and how I was able to communicate my passion for, let's say, photography and realizing that it is a difficult road to become a professional. And I essentially had to share with my uh, then girlfriend and at some point during this process, wife Kate around, this was a true dream. And I realized it was going to, it was going to put a burden on our family and we were going to have to, you know, I was going to drop out of graduate school and a, a certain path to a certain level of income, for example, and take this more risky path. And when I observe the people who are in this community, I would say that is one of the key problems in communicating your crazy idea that you want to do with this one precious life to the people who are around you who, for whom that might be scary because it involves financial risk mm. it involves, you know, um, there, there, there are risks involved, I will say. And mm. not the least of which is just a fear of going into the unknown and trying to become, you know, this, this dream that you have. And so I'm trying to help people understand how valuable the work that you have done is and it's not all at the podium. I recognized that I thought about what I truly wanted with this life of mine. And 
thought about it through the lens of my partner, through the lens of my parents and my career counselors and all the people who had influenced, you know, these sort of choices that we make. And I recognized post facto that I was successful in communicating this idea to my wife in such a way that she mm. would, that she would uh, go on that journey with me. So as you said earlier, sort of without, and there's no malice involved, but I wanted to provide a compelling story and it required me to understand actually what I wanted to say, because if you package this <laughs> shiny fictitious thing up, it's not going to go well. And so I'm wondering right. if, if by extension of that sort of analogy, you can help people understand using your technique, how would they package up a speech? I'm doing that in air quotes to help someone, a loved one understand that they want to, you know, pursue this crazy dream that they have, how using your philosophies and the techniques you describe in the book, how might someone approach this? Just, I know it's, we can't do the whole exercise, but help, help <laughs> use that as a background for the thought process. Ooh, you're making me work. All right. So, I mean, I think the thing that always, um, I think the thing that always is really effective is when you you start from a place that is unexpected, right? If especially if you're going to be speaking to someone who you sense might already have reservations, have made judgments, basically like it's almost the hardest thing you're going to do. You very rarely and this is important to know for anyone who's just scared of speaking you rarely encounter a hostile audience. Your audience is usually there because they want to be there, right? And they're very loyal and they will give you a lot of leeway and, they, and they'll applaud at the silliest things and they'll laugh at jokes that aren't even funny. So it's really easy. Now, the, the situation you're talking about is convincing someone who has a ton of context, who has personal... Um, stakes, right, in your decisions. Actually, it's probably the hardest audience that you could speak to. And so, and so, so thank you for this question. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I think um, what you need to do is almost right from the beginning, um, set set off and and sort of knock them off course right to start, so that they they can't be like you know, ready with that defensive thing, that they literally are like, whoa. Um, and that you're, while you're catching them from falling, you're explaining <laughs> all the benefits of it, right? So if you want to, you know, and I'm one of the, the things I am absolutely terrible at, and it's probably because I spend so long <laughs> crafting and perfecting things is, is thinking of um, on the spot um, analogies. But you know, if you're if you're trying to convince someone that you want to, um, you know, be that you want to be an artist, that you want to stop your finance job or whatever it is, don't start by talking about what that you don't start that way, right? <laughs> think of you need to go on this journey and think about what is it that's going, how is that person going to understand the value to you? And it might have nothing to do with art and it have nothing to do with Wall Street. Um, but, but it could be 
and it could be an insane data point. I mean, I can't, I can't say for sure what it is. Yeah. What I know is that you, that you, that you, it's got to be the unexpected beginning and yeah. that you're, you're, you have to step through making your case in a, in a, and think about basically something that they can't argue back because it is yeah. just about you. That emotional, you know, that, that emotional like, piece. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that I, I'm thinking but that's, the thing is, that's, is that's, that, that's worked. Yeah. It's really, really hard because also then you get emotional, right? And then you like, I mean, and that's the hard thing. You know, I, if I talk about myself and my family, I just start crying. So, uh, you know, it, it is really hard to get, um, to, to, get emo- to get, you know, personal, but people can't argue with how you feel. And this, I mean, we're getting into this sort of realm of therapy, but it's funny because so many people I work with say to me after the initial call uh, or meeting, my God, that felt like therapy because I'm literally asking them to sort of unburden themselves of everything. So I'm not going to write it in speech, but I have to, if I'm going to write this as you, I really need to understand like what you, what your thought processes are and what your pain points are and all this stuff. Um, And, and I think people come out of it just kind of astonished that they even shared what they shared with me. Um, but that's, but there's, but, but to it, me, this is genius. Like that's the thing that, that right now the, the goal would be to, um, or sorry, historically people may think or off the cuff people may think that, okay, cool. I need to set out a spreadsheet of it's going to work like this and like this and like this. And there's not, there's, you know, what I heard you talking about is basically a therapy and emotional sort of inward turning of like, how does it make me feel? And this idea of, for example, the idea of becoming a doctor, it's, it's romantic and I can help so many people, but at the end of the day, that's not where my heart is because you've had to, I would have had to, if you were my speechwriter, tell you that I, to not pursue my career as a photographer would have left me on my deathbed feeling like I had left some of the most important work in my life undone. And the thought of dying with that in me was like, how can you like the difference between that and a spreadsheet of like how I'm going to make the finances work. And, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear you reveal that people think of this (laughs) or feel like they've just gone through some sort of therapy. Is there, is that a key to it? Is it going to, is that how you craft these individual messages and how you make something that's resonant is, are the answers sort of in here versus out there? Um, so there is a whole chapter about who you are in the narrative. So there are certain speeches where your role is as expert or bystander and that you are not important and so there is a limited amount of times I want to hear I this and I that because and it's especially if you're speaking about someone else at a party a wedding a a bar mitzvah whatever it's the stories are the whole speech is about how amazing this person is you're there because you know that better than anyone else, but not because people want to hear about the time that you and this person did this and you and this person did this other thing, right? And it's not necessarily an opportunity for you to declare your love for that person. You can do that in private. You can pull them aside and say, I just think you're the best thing and I love you. 
your job is to put that person on a pedestal and tell everyone how awesome they are. Now, that is very, very different from a from a speech where maybe it's an award acceptance speech where people in the audience want to understand how you came to this to the thing that you do what your insight is how it makes you but then also it depends on the awards and and the audience because maybe you're just there to say thank you to other people there are so many nuances so it has to all the material has to come from within because your insights and experiences are the reason that you are there. They're the reason that you did something or know something that warranted this opportunity for you to address, right? But in terms of your role in the narrative that you construct, there is, uh, there is, you know, there is, there are different ways to manage that depending on who you're speaking to, what it's, what it's for. Um, so it, you know, again, and that is just something that like I can talk about, but it is, I can't, that's why when you say like, Oh, I'm going to like follow this formula. Like no one's saying that to you. No right. one on the, you know, is like be careful how much you talk, you know, talk about yourself or it's, you know, but as you said, like with a thought leadership speech or, you know, if you don't talk about what brought you to that moment, your failures or whatever it is, why would people be inspired by you? You know, because you have to be humble, you have to be human and you have to show vulnerability. People have to, it's like when you watch a movie, people have to be able to sympathize, empathize with the character and like the person. I mean, this is all, you know, Aristotle's ethos, pathos and all that stuff. But, you know, it's true. Like you, you have to see yourself in that person. Um, otherwise, they, ca- they can't connect to it. And very often it is about bringing yourself to something. And some people are amazing at it. Some people are too good at it. And you have to bring them back. Say, so, you know what, let's just take you out a little bit. And some people are absolutely adamant that they do not want to disclose anything about their own feelings their own experiences and that's like ringing I'm just like no you have to you have to share you know like if there's nothing of you in there then just we're just this is impossible um so it's interesting um I want to I want I want to talk you know I want I want to grab that and I want to pull that that um the role of role of you or just the role of different aspects rather than you as a a core piece, of course. But I was fascinated by the bit uh, on humor. There's, you know, humor is, (laughs) is humor in, in speaking and in conveying ideas is obviously very, very powerful. And you've got uh, a chapter in the book. It's like, uh, how to be funny when you're not, or when you don't think you are. Let me, where is it here mm-hmm. in my, Oh, how to be funny when you think you're not funny. So the role that humor, like yeah. I, I have always wanted to um, make sure to include some humor, ideally self-deprecating humor in my, um, in my, you know, I'll say speeches. Uh, but I, again, I want to keep this beyond the keynote, beyond the stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk, talk, talk to us about the role that humor plays. 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Humor is the one thing. It's the one area where we we bought like in that moment where we all laugh together. There's just like nothing else happening except we're laughing together. So you can you can have different ideas or enjoy different things or be comfortable with you know different philosophies whatever but if you're all laughing together in that one moment that's just everyone present together and so um and people I mean it's just always so surprising to me how often people will take out the jokes they'll just take out all the jokes and then say well it's well you know because it's not um, it's just not me or I'm just, you know, I just think it's just it's safer not to, I'm not that I don't make jokes in real life. I'm like, well, this isn't real life. <laughs> You're like, and no <laughs> one is sitting there with that. a scorecard. No one is sitting there with a scorecard going, well, they're not usually funny. So I'm not going to laugh at that joke. <laughs> you know. Um, but there are, there are so many different ways to, to use just the the truth of your message and the material that you have the real stories and the real nuggets of information to find humor it doesn't have to be I'm not I'm not you know you don't have to be a stand-up and that's you know and that goes to what I was saying before people are really they want to laugh I mean if you watch some of Obama's speeches like he'll make the lamest joke and everyone's like ah you know, because everyone wants to laugh at Obama um, or with Obama. I'm sure some people want to laugh at him. But, um, you know, so it's just about kind of like being open to, you know, finding the um, those where the way I always find humor is just one of the sort of, I would say, tricks of the trade, if there is one. <laughs> But just when I look at material that people give me or like different stories and different things, and I have this whole chapter called The Crazy Wall, where you basically like throw up everything you have to work with and you start kind of looking the at the weird, unexpected connections and you go, oh, wait, they said that, you know, this happened in 1989, but they also said that um, this person always wears, you know, pantaloons that you know and they never understood it and then it's like oh my god there's totally a joke and it's that's not because like I'm a funny person that's just because I can see there that that and that are just I mean of course there's a joke um um you know and there's and if you if you're really into humor and you watch like different comedians I mean everyone has different ways of being funny I Mitch Hedberg I mean his whole thing is just was just the the observation of the most ridiculous but specific thing that we all of us missed and he saw it and it was like oh i mean you know so there's just so many different ways to be funny but m- most importantly you sh- making people laugh is is just such a gift and if you could do it just once or twice you that's it like the the audience are with you you know um and hopefully you know i give people way to do that (laughs) oh you've definitely done it i i um have taken some of your advice i gave a speech uh 
with last time I was on stage was two years ago and I did an adaptation of it recently, uh, which is my first in-person keynote in some time. And the humor, I, I basically retold a joke that I told to my second grade classroom. And then I revealed the process while I was on stage that actually I told this joke and it's a terrible joke and it's very yeah. off, co off color and it makes me look wildly foolish. But this concept of yeah. both being aware of it and it just, it was so good to drop it in this particular point in the speech. And it was a little bit of a whim because I was out of practice, but you know, and in, in, mm -hmm. in looking and reading um, before you say anything, it was like, oh, so you, there's like an understanding, a retroactive understanding of that's why it worked because it was personal, because it was self-deprecating, because we've all been, you know, seven years old and, and we've all seen seven-year-olds say totally inappropriate things. And at the end of the day, it really wasn't that funny, but I want to, this is getting me to the point that I want to make here. Like the audience was so ready to laugh. And so yeah. let's go the opposite end of the spectrum. If the the point that yeah. I was framing earlier about, you know, the difficulty for creators to share with the people in their lives that they really aspire to be a creator and it may be hard and, and you may have a, a difficult audience in that, um, in that case, let's explore the other side, which is most people mm. when they're listening to you, they don't have a scorecard. They are interested. You're in the room with them because you are already, you know, either collaborating with them or hanging out with them, or you're in the same line of work or, they're at an event at the same event you are. So you've got some things in common. So let's uh, help help dispel the fear that most people have of this moment. The um, the moment, the moment of being just of, of are we talking about the same moment of no, I want to talk about that. You are the reason you are there and that people are not their goal is not to be critical of your speech. Their goal is like you're oh, yeah. at the wedding. We're 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 both friends with the yeah. bride and the groom. We share something in common yeah. already. You're not. I think the word you used earlier is that ninety something percent of audiences are not combative. That's not the goal of the audience and the presenter relationship. But no. for those of us that yeah. are nervous about public speaking or about sharing our ideas, I think that the opposite is true. Yeah. We, we we believe a, a, there's a false narrative that they're there to judge me and to give me a bad score on my speaking ability. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's so, um, I mean, that is just, it's so, I think our biggest fear is not, is not being, people say like, oh, my biggest fear is like speaking in front of an audience. And it's not, it's that you, it's that you're worried that people are going to think that you're not smart. We're so afraid that people are going to think we're not smart, that our ideas aren't good enough that, you know, and, um, there's so much, there's so much to this. Um, I think one of the things that I really try and emphasize is that an audience is, it, this, it, this isn't you versus them. A, and a speech, when you come to write the speech and any remarks that you're making or any messaging, and this comes back to the audience again, is that they are part of the narrative and you have to craft it as if you have to speak to them, right? 
but you have to include them in the story. So that's why people will say like, oh, you know, like the TED thing is like, ask a question, right? The reason that they do that so often at the beginning of a TED talk is because if you ask the audience a question, you are automatically welcoming them into the conversation. And a speech isn't a monologue. It just, that's for the bathroom mirror by yourself. It is, it is a dialogue. It's just that the, it's the part of the dialogue where you're doing the talking, but like at any point they could, you know, at the end respond. So like, if you think about it, you know, you go to a bar with a friend and then you have this thing that you want to talk to them about. And then, and then you just talk and talk and talk and then whatever, but it doesn't mean that that person's not there. Right. It just means that they're actively listening. But you're but you by talking, you know, hopefully, I mean, some people obviously do completely ignore the person <laughs> sitting opposite them. But the point is, is that they are an ally. Right. Like they are. They're just they're not the enemy. And the minute you realize that, like, you're actually this is like a, this is a conversation. This is a dialogue. And they're there to, to listen to you because they care what you have to say i think it re- it removes some of that that fear that like you somehow have to overcome right it, it you don't have to overcome you just have to include them and you know i, I there's this hilarious there's this hilarious podcast um not podcast uh, well it's an episode of a podcast i think it was this american life um where and i i it's in the book but it it's called fiasco and it's about this like college um performance of peter pan or something that goes desperately wrong at every turn i mean like people falling off the flying thing and (laughs) captain hook's hook flies into the audience i mean it, it couldn't be more of a disaster and and yet the audience really holds it together until like the tent thing goes wrong and the fires, the fire people have to, you know, the firemen have to come in from the local town and a bell crashes and like, you know, squashes someone. And then it just turns into, you know, then they lose it and they, they start to laugh and then they turn feral and then they want more, you know, but they <laughs> put up with so much because they want the performers to succeed. And that, and that is just, you know, I think if you just constantly just keep that, in mind that this is not a judgment on your capability no one's sitting there with a scorecard um that that hopefully removes the fear um you know there are a lot of there are a lot of coaches out there who i think probably have tactics for you know sort of positive mental you know strategies and but you know imagine a ball of fire or I know picture them naked that was definitely one of them for a while that was on Vogue um um but but that but that's kind of a band-aid over it it doesn't solve the actual like deep-seated fear and the fear is just that um it, it it's not combat it's it's like Daenerys Targaryen surrounded by all her people go yeah come on and it's the same thing you know they're with you they paid some of them paid to be there they want you to succeed yeah the people at the wedding they yeah they want to laugh they want you know like um it's all it's all fun it should be 
The ability to put yourself in that mindset is so important. I think that is a, you know, that's an area that um, quite often I think creates barriers for people. Again, this is not just on stages, but, you know, in rooms or I think I like the wedding toast, you know, idea that you you use uh, consistently, like they want you to succeed. And this, the only thing that sort of goes wrong is when you put up all these barriers and it's the rigidity, all of the things that you feel like make up a speech, which are actually the opposite of what, you know, provides a connection and provides the vulnerability and the, the, you know, the opportunity to let, let the audience in. I think it's very misunderstood, very misunderstood. It is, but I, and it is, but I also think that people assume that, um, again, there's this, there's this sort of standard to which they must adhere of public speaking. And that if you can't get up and be Tony Robbins, then you're, then you're failing. Right. And it's just, it's so misplaced because when I work with, um, with a speaker, we do delivery sessions to make sure that they're like nailing the punchlines and that they can understand the different shifts of energy and that, you know, because the way it's pieced together is like, there is shape to it, right? So you're taking them on a, the audience on a journey. So you have to be able to like signal that with your voice, etc. And yet, I will always say, I am not trying to change who you are. I'm not trying to turn you into a pro. I'm trying to listen to who you are as a natural, naturally as a speaker, and just bring out your strengths. And actually, the shyest person who can't look up from the paper can give just as perfect a delivery as the person who's like, you know, prowling around the stage, which by the way, I hate, please don't ever move around the stage. Um, But, but, uh, you know, it's not about like that, that, that you have to be this, this perfect polished person. Um, And then, um, and, and also just to know that it is completely natural. I think probably Tony Robbins also has a little bit of adrenaline before buzz before he gets on the stage. It is so natural to, to feel that because it is adrenaline, right? Whether it's, it's like you're, you're the thing to know. And this unfortunately does only come with, with experience is that every time you do it, that, when you get on stage or when you, you know, grab the mic, whatever, the minute you start speaking is gone. It's anticipation. And that is, you know, it's, it's anxiety. And anxiety is always about the idea that something could go wrong. It's not the actual reality. But the minute you start speaking and you're in that moment, there's no time to feel scared because you've got to give your speech. So you're just, you know, but the more you do it, the more you're sort of like plugged into that. I definitely still have like those kind of like jitters. I'm like, oh, here we go. But I know that the minute I start, they're just, they just melt away. And then I'm just having fun. Right. And so knowing that it's okay to feel that way, no one's trying to, you know, nix and erase your, your, your feelings and, you know, emotional responses. Like, no, it's fine but just be aware it's, of them and embrace them and just go, it's okay. <laughs> no, nah, that there is a lot of wisdom in there. And, you know, again, the same is true if you're on stage at a keynote or in front of your, you know, the company that you're leading or even sometimes your family, if you got to talk about something important or scary or exciting. Um, I want to finish up on this idea around um, 
practicing. And it goes back to what we opened with mm. the idea that the perception of most people who started listening and watching our conversation today is that great speakers are just great. And that is their gift in life and that they did not practice a lot to get there. And I do know people who are more willing to make mistakes in front of others. And perhaps that is uh, one of their vectors or their vehicles by which they got good at this. But the reality is you get good at something from practicing. And this is true, whether you're talking about brain surgery or juggling or uh, speaking a foreign language, you have to practice in order to become successful. So you wrap up your book with this, you know, the concept of practicing giving your speeches and standing and delivering. So what's advice mm -hmm. that you give? You know, you can feel free to comment as you had in the book. Again, the book we're talking about, just as a reminder here, is Before You Say Anything, The Untold Stories and Fail-Proof Strategies of a Very Discreet Speechwriter. Um, I, I want to find out why you describe yourself as very discreet, but we're going to go, we'll, we'll wrap up with that in a second, but just this idea of practice, okay. right? Most people yeah, think yeah. that it's natural. And, and so give us a, your thoughts on how yeah. great speeches are practiced. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, Winston Churchill had a terrible stutter and, but he was really absolutely determined to be like this great speaker and he worked his behind off to become the speaker he was. Now, obviously, he's an incredible writer, too. So that helps, right? There are two pieces of this, right? There's the there's what you write and what you say, and then how you deliver it. But, but practice is, um, I mean, when you, so many people come to me and say, I want to give a TED talk. And I'm like, oh, are you speaking at TED? And they're like, no, no, just a TED style talk. I'm like, what, <laughs> what does that mean? And they have this like image that that they want to be up on the stage, they want to look like they just made it up with the headphone, and they would quite like to like walk around and just look incredibly authoritative and inspire everyone, right? Like that's the sort of like image, right? Those talks that they're like nine months in the making, like the, the they are rehearsed for so long, um, and so yes, you do if you if that's what you're trying to achieve and you want to memorize a speech, you have to do it, you have to practice and practice and practice because memorization, it, and this, I mean, this I could talk about for another hour, is that it, the minute you forget one thing or you look up to the heavens because you can't quite remember that line, you break that, that, that facade of, you know, straight away we see like, oh, and it just is crushing for the audience um, because you can't be present in what you're saying if you're constantly thinking to the next line. That means you're not connected to the actual material. So to really memorize your speech effectively, you do have to just practice and practice and practice and practice. So you're literally saying it in your, in your sleep. I would say, okay, you know, fine. If, that, if, if you're doing a TED talk and you have to, and they, you know, which they don't, by the way, say so you have to. Um, then, then fine. I'm a big proponent of taking your script up with you, being really familiar with it, but having it there. There is nothing, because first of all, like that's the acknowledgement that you actually worked on it. But it gives you that sense of, I think that confidence, right? That you can like, that you're not just like, oh, fish and water, oh my 
God, what's going to happen? But the so when you think about practicing and you're going to have your notes, we'll just sort of focus on that for a minute. Um, there is actually a really interesting line you can cross where if you over-practice, you potentially do more damage than good because you start to riff a little bit, right? And riffing on something that you've really carefully like put together can actually like pull a thread too far out of the jersey and the whole thing starts to fall apart. Um, and then it's really hard to come back to what you were saying if you've decided that you know it so well that, you know, so bleh, I was a bit like, don't get too overconfident with it. But also just because I think there is something really charming about the um, about seeing someone up there who is really familiar with their with their with their content, but it's still almost discovering and in the act of telling you about they're so connected to it because it's there's still a novelty in a way this it hasn't been just like you know if it, it gets over practiced it can become very wooden and then it starts to feel inauthentic because i start to feel that you are performing and i don't really want a performance right i want preparation but i want you to be responding to the material for real in an authentic mm -hmm. way as you deliver it to me. So, but, you know, to the to the bigger thing, like obviously the more you go out on the stage, the more you accept invitations and the more you say, you know, I'm going to put myself up for this thing and do it, the better you will become. My book cannot make you a great, fantastic writer, but that isn't the point of the book. You know, like that's... to great writing is just it, it is like instinctual right but speeches are very much about the synthesis of ideas I kind of think of it in like the difference between you know like a Malcolm Gladwell book where you're just like whoa he just look at the way he put all those pieces together like he just pulled that thing apart and then put it back together and like whoa the writing itself very plain and clear because that's what his that's how he writes, right? And I know that he's, that's very intentional that he's, his writing is played. But let's say, you know, who's your favorite novelist? Beautiful language and flourishes or whatever. Great, like that's an amazing read, but that's not what I want in a speech. I don't want, you know, every word to be like a five syllable word. Like just, I need to understand what you're saying in a much more direct way. So it's very much about like putting, how you put those ideas together and communicate them in the simplest and most direct way. And then the more you do that and the more you get up and do that, of course, you're going to feel better about it. As you say, like practice just makes you better and better. Not perfect. No one is perfect. Everyone can improve on everything. <laughs> and yeah. And you Blanket don't want to be, I think, and you don't want to be, I think that's no, part of what I, I, I yeah. yeah. One of my favorite takeaways from the book is just reinforcing that, you know, perfection is not what people want. They want authenticity and individuality and personality. Um, and again, I have to I absolutely, my belief that oral communication, I have a strong belief rather that oral communication is so important and our ability to deliver messages, whether they're at work or at home, um, you know, on the TED stage or um, in 
you know, trying to get someone to believe in the vision that you have for your life. These are all, you know, oration, the ability to convey these ideas is super powerful. It's, it's a learnable, teachable skill. And we know that from your book, again, the book, Before You Say Anything, The Untold Stories and Fail-Proof Strategies of a Very Discreet Speechwriter. I know you've written for, you know, thought leaders, influencers, CEOs, NFL stars, politicians, um, all over the map. Why, why the discreet speechwriter <laughs> in the title? Help, help me understand that. <laughs> Well, the book is the book is both um, it's a, you know sort of a look behind the process, right? So it's the first time I've kind of um, unveiled like the crazy machinations of my, like what it is that I'm doing when I put these speeches together. But I can't do that without um, obviously telling a lot of stories about the collaborations that I've been lucky enough. Um, to have over the years. I mean, I've, I and I, I've worked with people who are, you know, prolific, and then just like everyday people, and there is no difference in terms of like, who's more interesting than who it's, you know, it human, it, all our stories and experiences. I mean, just that's why I love my job. I, I love it. Because I just talk to people all day long, every day and hear other people's perspectives. It is so unbelievably rewarding. But to, to answer your question, um, people feel that that there is still so much, um, so much of a kind of taboo around this, like I, the idea of having a speech writer, that, like, that, that it's like a guilty, you know, a guilty vice that you, you know, I can't write by myself. So I have this person do it or, you know, this incredibly personal speech about someone at, at you know, my friend's birthday. I, I couldn't like pull it out of the hat myself. And that's like really embarrassing. And I'm really want to break that because I just, I don't see why you would have, you know, you would tell people about your, the person who gives you your Botox and you would tell people about the person who, you know, I don't know, gets the bunions off your feet and then you would like hire and share your interior designer or whatever it is. And yet with a speech writer, you can't, you can't admit that someone helped you craft this message. I, it, and so I really like working <laughs> to sort of blow that myth up that there's something to feel guilty about. But most people who work with me do do so thinking that there is, um, you know, that there is discretion and that, you know, I'm not going to share stories. And for the, for the most part, I don't. <laughs> but for the book, um, because I really needed to, to illustrate the stories, you know, I, I have, I have, I've gone there, <laughs> I've changed all the names and no one should know who anyone is. Um, but um, the book is, is part memoir. It's like, you know, it's about those really human relationships that I form with the people and like how we delved into their ideas and, and, you know, talked about them and tangled with them together. And, and um, so, you know, it should feel kind of, my husband says it's like kitchen confidential for speeches. I don't know. <laughs> it's very flattering. Um, but yeah, it does, you know, it is, it is just about, it's about people. Speech writing is just, is about people. Um, and so. I found that to be true. You, you learn a lot about not just the individuals, but the art of speech writing and how to think about, you know, your ability to write a great speech or to 
share a great idea through your very personal stories. And I want to say thank you for sharing with us today for being on the show. I want to say oh, the con- thanks is all mine. Thank you. Con- congratulations on an amazing book. Again, how important communication is specifically spoken communication. Um, what's the, you know, where would you direct us aside from the, the book? Are there any other places you want to point our community uh, out there uh, to your work or on the internet? I know the, um, the yeah. website, which I won't say because I won't be able to do the British accent, but where else would you like us to go? <laughs> no, go on. I want you to try. Go on. Go <laughs> the on. Oratory Laboratory. <laughs> and that's not bad. Not it's better bad. than the first time. Yeah. TheArtoryLaboratory.com <laughs> is the website. Um, I've recently taken to TikTok for better or worse. I think it's at Victoria.Wellman. Um, I have an Instagram page. Um, on the website at the moment, um, I am working on a sort of side project uh, called Free Speech, um, which I definitely would love people to check out. It's, um, you know, just the the idea is, is that everyone really deserves a speechwriter. At the moment, it's, it's kind of inaccessible to a lot of people, but everyone has something important to say. So... Uh, it started in 2016. It's sort of um, it's in its infancy still. I'm working with uh, Ukrainians and Russians at the moment. At the time of of doing this, hopefully, um, you know the speakers. You know the, it's not limited to working with them, but just obviously right now this is really important. Um, and it's just an opportunity to uh, take everything I know, compress it into a tiny micro timeline, and get as many speeches out there. Um, 60 seconds, sort of manifestos um so people can you know i can help amplify those voices um and uh yeah so it's a great project it'll you know it'll continue to grow i'm very proud of it i'm very passionate about it um but other than that um well what about and and uh, we know we know we have a lot of uh ceos and leaders who listen to the show um and who may be interested in in hiring you to help craft some of these Mm-hmm. Um, authentic, vulnerable, powerful narratives um, is the best place to hire you specifically is to go to the site? You can go to the site and fill out the form or you can just email me at victoria at theoratorylaboratory.com. Awesome. <laughs> it's the Thank- longest email address ever. <laughs> it's a real pain in the bum when you have to <laughs> type it into <laughs> I didn't Thank- think that one through at all. <laughs> You were too busy writing speeches. Uh, thank you so yes. much for being on the show. Congratulations again on the book. And uh, we're very, very excited to support you in in your work here. Our community will go out and we'll show up for you. So thanks again for being on the show. Until thank next you. time, uh, from thank Victoria so and and myself to all everybody out there in the, um, in the ether, we are grateful for you and your attention and we bid you adieu. All right, that's all for today's show. But hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also... 
I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right, I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of texts, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment, but trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I wanna say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.